Well, good morning, friends. I'm going to invite you to grab your beverages and come and take your seats, and we'll continue with our teaching time. Uh, my name's Brad. I am part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and I want to, you to play a little game with me as we begin our look into uh, the book of Galatians this morning. So I'm going to say a phrase, and then you're going to complete it, or you're going to shout out what comes to your mind. All right? Does that make sense? So if I say the phrase, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, then you would know that that's from? Tale of Two Cities. Yes, Dickens, that's right, exactly. Uh, if I sang the phrase, sometimes you want to go. Yes, there you go. Cheers, right? A theme song. If I said, shaken, not stirred. Yeah, but who? Sean Connery, of course, the one and only, you know, forever, in my mind, peak James Bond. All right. Um, if I said something like the 12th man, what am I talking about? The Seahawks. What, am, what about the Seahawks, though? The fans. That's right. Exactly. So if I start with a phrase, it's probably slightly less well-known, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I took the one less traveled, and that's made all the difference. That's a poem by Robert Frost. And the whole poem goes like this. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood. And I looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. And then I took the other. Just as fair. And perhaps having the better claim because it was grassy and wanted where... Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black, but I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back, and I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages hence. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and it has made all of the difference. So why bring all of these examples up? Well, sometimes when we want to invoke the whole of something, we use just the first line or phrase. When we want to try and capture a feeling or an emotion or an experience, we speak in shorthand. Sometimes we'll use the first line of a chorus to designate the whole song. Or um, you only have to name the first line of a poem and then people get the meaning behind it. Or for our Catholic brothers and sisters, entire papal encyclical letters are invoked by just quoting the first line in Latin. And then that signifies everything else that came in that. And so similarly, in the ancient world, and when we come to the Bible sometimes, Sometimes you're reading along, and there's a little tiny quote in it, and then the author just keeps going, and you think, well, why did they put that quote in there? It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really express a whole thought in some way. Why would they bring that up? And what they mean to do is when they quote the first line 
of, for example, an Old Testament psalm. They want to invoke the whole of that psalm. And so Jesus on the cross, as an example, quotes the first line of Psalm chapter 22, where he says, God, why have you forsaken me? And then the whole of Psalm 22 is meant to flow out of that in our memories. It's a kind of shorthand or inference. And so this fall, when we're going through the book of Galatians here at Jericho, we've come into the middle portion of the book of Galatians in chapter 3. And it's one of the most dense parts of the book. There's a lot of very compressed thinking going on here. And sometimes Paul, the author, when he writes and wants to, us to think about a big and expansive idea, he just quotes the very first line of something from the Old Testament. And then that, he assumes that we would all know what he's talking about and then just keeps right on going to the next thought. And so it's a very dense part that we've arrived to. And Paul's trying to communicate with his original readers, the little group and the church that met in uh, the province of Galatia in modern-day Turkey. And he's trying to remind them about God's promises and God's faithfulness. And the word still speaks to us today. So if you have your Bibles, or you can turn on your phones, or in the Jericho Ridge app, there's a Bible as well, to Galatians chapter 3. I'll also have it up on the screens here for us. And Paul has been laying out a notion in the book of Galatians that there's two paths that we can walk down. One is the path of rule-keeping and law-abidance, and then the other path there is a path to blessing. See, there were false teachers in Galatia, and they were suggesting that in order to be part of God's family, you had to do all the right things. You had to observe the ancient Jewish food laws. You had to make sure that you were following the rules about Sabbath keeping totally. You had to make sure that you were playing your cards just right so then God would count you amongst the faithful and part of God's family. And Paul's saying, you know what? There's another path, a pathway that actually leads to blessing. And Paul's going to argue fairly compellingly and forcefully that if you want to follow the pathway of the law, then that's not actually following the path of blessing. But if you're following that futile pathway that people have walked, that pathway doesn't lead anywhere productive. And so what Robert Frost's poem suggests, we would do well to pause for a moment and decide which path has the better claim and then decide which one we want to travel. Because otherwise, we may find ourselves walking down a road that we think is leading to blessing and to life, but really, we might be walking right off of a cliff. So turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to start reading at verse 10. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And Paul writes and says, so think about this pathway. Those who want to depend on the law to make them right with God are under God's curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not obey and observe all of the commands that are written in God's book of law. 
Now, again, here's this little phrase that Paul has used, for the scriptures say. That means he's quoting from an Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, an older source. And here, Paul is invoking or inviting us to remember all of the covenant, the agreement that Moses had made between God and the people of Israel when they left Egypt millennia beforehand. And Paul knows that his original readers know their history really well, better than we do. And so they understood what Paul was doing here when he says, as the scriptures say, and he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, which is the end of the first five books of the the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, They understood that in the end of Deuteronomy, there was chapters and chapters of lists of blessings for those who followed and walked in obedience to God's laws and curses for those who did not. And the people had been invited in that moment with Moses to stand in their own fork in the road and choose which pathway they were going to walk out. Blessing if you obey God's commands, non-blessing if you don't. And we're going to see that Paul wants them to remember this and then he's going to put up some signposts along the way to help us do our own bit of navigation because he's laying out an argument in Galatians, not just for his original readers, but one that we should pay attention to as well and understand because I don't know about you, but I want to be sure that I'm on the right path in my life. And so in Galatians chapter 3.10, Paul lays out his first signpost with this quotation and he says, remember, there was curses invoked on those who did not affirm and obey the terms of instructions of the law in Deuteronomy 26. And for us, as modern readers, we pick this up and we read it and say, Paul, that's a little bit harsh. Like all of this business of curses, you know, that grates against our notion of personal freedom and efficacy. But What Galatians as a book as a whole is arguing is that if you want to depend on following all of the right rules in order to get right with God, you're on the wrong pathway. And so Paul is putting this argument here, this claim that, oh, if I follow all the rules, that I can be right with God people who depend on the law to make them right with God, but who come up short because they can't keep all of the law and the rules. And therefore, because they've come up short, the curses of the law are now in play for them. This would have made perfect sense to the Jews and the listeners of Paul's day. They would have looked at their own lives and their own history and the world around them and gone... Yeah, no, I see what he's saying. I mean, I know my own life. I know I'm not perfect. I know the world is broken. There's a lot of things in it that are wrong. But they also held out a sense of hope. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1, Moses, when he's speaking to the people, says, in the future, when you experience all of these blessings, 
and curses that I've listed for you. When you're living among the nations to which the Lord your God has exiled you, take heart. Listen to these instructions. If at that time you and your children return to the Lord, if you obey with all of your heart and your soul all the commands that I'm giving you today, then the Lord God will restore your fortunes. He will have mercy on you. He will gather you back from the nations where he has scattered you. The Lord God will return you and will make you even more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. And so the people that were hearing Paul remind them in Galatians about cursed is anyone who doesn't affirm and obey the terms of these instructions are living outside of their land. They're exiled. And so when they read this, they go, okay, that means that me as an individual and us collectively, we have not been about obedience to God's commands. Otherwise, God would have restored our fortunes. We'd be back where we belonged. And so Paul in Galatians 3 is just highlighting the universal human condition and the problem. And he's saying, listen, lest you get any wrong ideas, there is no way that anyone ever anywhere can live such a good and righteous life that they meet all of the requirements of the law. There's no one that's perfect. So therefore... Anyone who hasn't been able to keep the law fully is a lawbreaker. And therefore, the curse comes into play. And we're all hooped. So what do we do? Well, Paul goes on, Galatians 3, 11. He says, so let's just be clear. It's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, again, another quotation, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. So sometimes when I hear people talk about the Old Testament and they say things like, well, you know, maybe God had a plan back then that if you kept all the rules, you could get in God's good books. That was how you got in to God's family. But then Jesus came along and now it's a different way. We've got faith now. It's a different, different plan. And that thinking, Paul says here, is, is wrong-headed because never was it God's purpose and design that you could be made right with God by keeping the law. We talked about that last week. So Paul quotes from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, and he puts another signpost up, and he says, the signpost, the way, has always been by faith. The righteous person will live by their faithfulness to God. God demonstrated God's covenant faithfulness to people. God was good. God gave many things to us, which many of which we've named already this morning to be grateful for. And God's faithfulness then inspires and allows us to respond in faithfulness. And so the righteous person will live by faith or by their faithfulness or by their faith in God. We talked about that two weeks ago. In other words, placing your faith, your confidence, your trust in Christ or in God 
is the pathway that everyone has been invited to walk down throughout all of redemption history. It wasn't law-keeping in the old days, and now God came up with some new plan when he finally figured out, goodness, people can't seem to keep all of these rules. That's horrible. We should think of plan B. It was always God's plan that faith would be the signpost and the entrance to God's family. And we said last week, the way in is the way on by faith. Faith isn't, in other words, an addition or a new layer. That somehow what we need to do is just try and be the best human beings we can possibly be and just really try to be generous and kind and good and loving and faithful and all of the good things. And then if we kind of don't quite get there, then we're like, ah, there's an escape hatch. There's this faith business. Now I'll just try and layer that on top of my human goodness and endeavors. And then... That'll bridge the gap between God and myself. And Paul says, mm, 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 no, no, no. It's never been that way. We're all lawbreakers, and therefore, it's clear we can't be made right with God by trying to just be a better human being, by keeping laws. The scripture says the way. It's by faith that a righteous person has life. It isn't just that you're walking down the path of being a good person and then somehow you get another sort of little detour along that that's a faith pathway. It's like when you say yes to God through Jesus, it's like you're transported to a whole other path. The map totally changes. Your reference points change. Everything changes. Listen to how he builds on the argument in Galatians 3.12. The way of faith is very different from the way of law which says it's through obeying the law that a person has life. So here Paul is turning the argument on itself. Oh, you want to try and keep the law and get to life. Well, what does the law say about that? Well, the law says that it's obeying through the obeying the law that a person has life. But could you ever get there on your own? He says, no. But the problem isn't the law itself, that the law ultimately was incomplete. The problem is that the law ultimately can't deal with the deepest problem that we face as a human being. And here Paul's quoting from Leviticus chapter 18, where... In Leviticus, it says, if you obey my decrees and regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord. Well, you say, what is it, Paul? Am I finding life through the law or am I not finding life through the law? Though you don't, you're not making a ton of sense. Well, Leviticus goes on to say that and describe the picture of life that Paul is describing here is not this sense of eternal connection with God. It's a sense of if there's a set of rules that have been in place for us, for our lives, they're for our flourishing and for human goodness. And so if we keep them, it's going to lead to flourishing, flourishing of human community. So that's what Paul's saying by following the law, then. That's the way of life. We're going to enjoy a sense of goodness, a sense of human community will we'll work well together if we follow those things. But he's saying that when you're walking down the law pathway, and if you keep telling yourself, I'm going to do enough good stuff to outweigh all of the bad stuff in my life, then that is not the pathway of life and blessing because you never know when you've reached that destination. This was the story of 
my own family. I grew up in a home that uh, didn't profess faith in Christ. My parents said, you know, basically we're good people. So what more do we need than that? But a nagging suspicion kept coming over them every now and then, just in the deepest part of their soul. And they would think, but how good do you have to be to be good enough? How do I know that I've crossed some kind of threshold? What if just before I died, I did something stupid and wrong and that tipped the balance? And that nagging question kept persisting in their souls. And they began to explore it a little bit more and figure out what is the pathway that I'm on? What if the pathway that I'm on doesn't lead, it's insufficient to leading to a sense of life? The law pathway keeps reminding us of insufficient deficiencies in our own lives. The law pathway keeps reminding us, I live under a curse for doing stuff that I shouldn't do or leaving undone good things that I know I ought to undertake. And so for Paul, even though he's quoting Leviticus here, he's using it to really undermine their argument. And he's saying the law is not really a life-giving tool even though it can be helpful. It spotlights our inadequacies and on all of the things that are broken and wrong with the world. And then Paul introduces some profoundly good news. In verse 13, he says, but Christ rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he was hung on the cross. He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing, for it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. And here again, Paul's going back into Deuteronomy. One of the components of the law that was outlined real clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 21 was that in, um, if someone had committed a crime worthy of death and they were executed and they were hung on a tree, they were cursed in the sight of God. And so here, Paul is capturing this Old Testament image and making a stunning and radical claim. He says, oh, you want to talk about misdemeanors, punishment for crime, do you? Because of the law. Yeah, we can have that conversation, but let's think about where the punishment for crime was placed. The law points to punishment for transgressions. And Paul's readers would be expecting then, okay, if we can then follow the law sufficiently, then we're going to somehow escape the punishment and be on the path to blessings. We get out from under the law. But then in a stunning and unexpected way, Paul says, oh, no, no, no. The curse for the law is still coming because we're all lawbreakers. So it doesn't just get canceled in some magical way. But what does happen in an absolutely unexpected, stunning reversal is that Jesus, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, allows himself to be sentenced to the death of a criminal, even though he committed no crime worthy 
of death and wrongdoing, and he is hung on a tree on our behalf. And so Paul's readers immediately would have just <gasps> gasped and thought, how is that possible? Messiah, the rescuer, the rede God himself allowed the curse to fall on God instead of on me. And see, the point of Paul's argument here, the force of it, the weight of it suddenly comes to, into clear relief, and we see that the curse broke over Messiah Jesus, and Jesus bore the full weight when he hung on the cross of the curse, and by doing so, he broke it. And because he broke it, the power of the law to have any say anymore was also broken because it was fulfilled. The law said punishment. The curse was invoked. And Jesus said, I choose to take that on myself and let others go free. Now, Paul says, the logjam has been broken. The blessing can now come that's been promised by God to those who keep the law because the law has been met. The requirements of the law have been met in full. And the irony of this is so thick in Paul's writings that sometimes we miss it, that the cross is that place of God's great reversal. The cross is the place where God chose to absorb all of the evil of the world and through sacrificial and costly love overcome it. The cross is that place where the curse for non-law keeping has been broken because the law has been fulfilled and therefore you and I no longer have to live under the curse. That kind of rule keeping, white knuckled, I hope I do enough good things to make it kind of thinking because you've been released and set free from that. Being worried about, does God love me? Have I done enough good things? Listen to Paul's argument as he goes on in verses 14 to 18. Verse 14, he says, through Christ Jesus now, and what Jesus did by living the perfect life, by dying on the cross, and by rising again from the grave, God has blessed the Gentiles, the non-Jews, people who did not expect to be part of God's family, you and I, with the same blessings that God promised to Abraham so that those who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. See, Paul's now arguing from experience. And he's saying, have you received the Holy Spirit? Do you know and have you tasted of God's goodness and God's presence in your life? If God has come to live in you and built in you the assurance of God's presence and power, if God has given you gifts for service and for witness in the world, when you exercise faith to believe God's promises, then you are filled with the very presence and power of God's Spirit. And therefore, 
you know that the curse has been broken because there's no way that that promise would have come into your life except through Jesus and what Jesus did. And so to hammer home his point even more, Paul uses a very practical example from daily life. He uses the image of a legal contract and the very fine details of a legal contract. See, if it's any old contract, you could write it up yourself. But if you have a contract that's really specific and needs some real fine-tuning and really needs to be anchored down pretty tight, then you're going to go to a lawyer and get them to make sure that all of the clauses that are placed into that contract are in effect and that they're really doing what you need them to do. And so Paul uses this example of a legal contract in verse, starting in verse 15. He says, uh, brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, like a legal contract. So it is in this case. God gave the promise to Abraham and to his child. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, as if that meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. So lawyers love to make finely tuned arguments about the law, right? So Paul picks this up and says, uh, let me give you an example of what happened. God made a pre-law, pre-Moses promise to Abraham. Abraham lived approximately 430 years before Moses lived. And so God made a promise, signed a contract with Abram and Abraham's family and God makes a promise, Paul said, not to a group of people, but to a singular individual. So Paul's saying, let's read the fine print of the contract. The contract says, God promised something to Abraham's child. Well, who, who was Abraham's child? Paul goes on to argue and says, oh, you think in Galatia, remember you've got false teachers running around saying actually the promises of Abraham and the promises of God are only for good law-abiding Jewish people. The rest of you need to find another way. And Paul turns this argument on his head and says, oh, oh, you think that God promised something to you as a special person just because you're part of Abraham's family? Oh, let's read the contract. The fine details of the contract don't say God promised it to all of Abraham's children. It says God promised it to Abraham's child. Who's Abraham's child again? Not just Isaac, his biological child. Paul says the child, the seed of Abraham is Jesus. So Paul's making a fine distinction here and saying, oh, you're arguing you're the seed of Abraham. You're the children of Abraham. So you get somehow special blessings and special access, special privilege. No, 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 no. You want to know the only one who has special access and privilege? It's the seed, the child of Abraham, Jesus. And the God's blessings and his promises didn't come through you because you were born into some special family or ethnicity or had some special history. No, God made an agreement with Abraham that God would bless all all of humanity through Abraham's seed, singular, through Abraham's child, and that child is Christ, and through that child, Jesus comes 
all of the blessings of God to Abraham's family and beyond, to all of the nations. And so Paul's making his legal case here and saying, "Mm -mm -mm. if you want in to God's family, it's not about ethnicity or history. You get in the way everyone gets in by coming in through the soul air, the channel through which all of God's promised blessings come to humanity, not just by being part of a particular ethnic group. And we would add today, and Pastor Wally did a great job on a sermon about this a few weeks ago, not by being some special part of a church community or Mennonite family or a family that has Christian history for generations or anything like that. You don't walk the pathway of blessing by being a good attender at a church or faithfully giving money or going on a trip to Guatemala or seeking to be a good person. You receive the, the promises of God by faith in Jesus and by walking in relationship with Jesus. So Paul goes on to make another distinction, pulling out the contract and saying, let's look at the fine details again. Galatians three seventeen. This is what I'm trying to say. The agreement that God made with Abraham couldn't be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses because then God would be breaking God's promise. And so Paul uses two different terms here to describe what's going on. See, the false teachers in Galatia are saying, yeah, all the promises God gave to Abraham, those are good. Then we added on the law to that with Moses, and that kind of formed this tight little package so we can only get the promises if we keep the law. And Paul blows that apart and says, ah, 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 two different things. Promise made 430 years earlier to Abraham God doesn't nullify that or cancel it when somehow Moses comes along and, and God's like, ah, I guess the promise isn't really doing it. We should add some rules in to see if we can get there. Paul says, law, that's fine. You want to use law. Law is described of what God gave to Moses, Torah, the people of Israel, what God arranged for them. And Paul said, yeah, but that's different than what God promised to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, and that promise was not changed in any way 430 years later when Moses came along and the people of Israel made a covenant with God. And so he's making a second fine distinction here in the legal contract and saying, let's get clear, there's a difference between promise and law. And he's arguing on the basis of legal precedent, which we would understand. So a legal precedent means that the latest document or decision supersedes and overrides the former ones. So if, for example, in the case of a will, you write a will, and then later on you think, hmm, you know what, I need to do some updating around here. You date the new document, and then the law and judge and the courts are all obligated to see that the new will supersedes the old will. It nullifies it. It cancels it. That's the way that it works. Or if you have a contract and then you write a new contract, you write right into the new contract, this contract cancels all the other contracts. I want to revoke all of those. The new one takes precedent. And so Paul is saying, well, yes, that's true, but these are actually two different documents. 
They're two separate things. So it's not like God made a promise to Abraham and Abraham's family that all of the nations would be blessed, that you could be part of Abraham's family, you could be part of God's family, and then suddenly the law came along and was like, mm, actually, no, we're going to shut the door on that. Might have been a little too wide. Let's close it down. All those loopholes, the new one's going to take precedent legally. Paul says, no, 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 no. The old document still stands. Law is different than promise. The law given to Moses 430 years after Abraham does not annul or revoke God's promises. God's promise still stands. And then also, the law cannot be added in as an addendum to the promise, like an appendix on it. Like, yeah, yeah, we'll try and sneak this one in and see if they notice. They're distinct entities. And the reason that Paul is saying this is Paul's saying God is not a promise breaker. God didn't say something to Abraham and then somehow think, oh, that's not going really well. I wonder if I should come up with something new. Paul says, no, God is always faithful to God's promises. Second Corinthians 1 says, all of God's promises are yes and amen, meaning that God always keeps the promises that God makes. And friends, if you are looking for something sure and certain and firm in your life and in the storms of life, you can cling to the fact that God keeps God's promises. God has never broken a promise. Think for a minute about some of the promises that God has made. Promises like Deuteronomy chapter 3, 16, be strong and courageous, the Lord says, for never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You might be here today and you might be going through an extremely difficult season in your life and you might feel all alone. You might feel like God has forsaken you. You might feel like no one cares about you. You might feel that you are beyond anyone's care and reach. You look at pictures people are going to post this weekend on Instagram about all their happy family and their turkey dinners, and you think, well, that's not me. My family's a wreck. It's a mess. I don't know what that's even going to look like. It's a time of pain for you. That might be a promise of God that you need to cling to then in this time when it seems that others around you have forsaken you that God says in Deuteronomy 3, never, never, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. See, God has not left you alone. God guides like a father. God comforts like a mother. And God in Psalms makes promises like, I will set the lonely in families. And this morning, even if you think no one else sees you, God sees you and God knows every part of your life and your circumstance and you are not alone. God is faithful. God makes so many promises to us in the scripture. Maybe this week you fell back into a pattern 
of sin and a pattern of behaving or a habit that just trips you up again and again and again. And no matter how hard you try, you fall back into the same old ruts of sexual sin or greed or gossip or whatever it is that you struggle with. And you think to yourself, I just feel every time so unworthy and I feel like I'm, I'm just rotten to the core and I feel like there's nothing I can do to break free of any of this stuff. What am I even doing here at church today? All these people probably have it all together. If they only knew what was going on in my life, what was going on in my heart, I don't think that any of them would even welcome me through these doors. And you might not be able or feel like you've ever been able to shake that nagging sense of guilt that the law has proclaimed over you, but God has made a promise to you, and it's a promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 that says, God is faithful. If we confess our sins, God is faithful, God is just, God will forgive our sins, will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a promise of God to cling to in that time of feeling completely defeated by the latest episodes in your life. There are so many promises that God has given to us. And that's one of the beauties and one of the riches of engaging in the scripture. Every day when I get up in the morning, we've got a a Bible reading plan here at Jericho called Project 345, meaning that it takes the average reader three minutes and 45 seconds to read through one chapter in the New Testament. And so every morning when I get up, I read through, there's a a psalm that we read, uh, and then there's a chapter in the New Testament. And for me, what I'm sometimes looking for is I'm looking for what is God's promise for me today? Not in a sort of a randomly open the Bible and go, okay, God, what do you got for me? You know, uh, and just pick something random. But I'm trying to pay attention to, is God saying anything to me that in this moment, in my life, in this season, I need to cling to and pay attention to? The worship team's gonna come and we're gonna respond to God